Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powles, our Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again today by my colleagues, Essie Maravara and Courtney West. Um, we're here, very excited to be here in person, double vaxxed. That's right. Quite weird to be sitting in the same room and sharing the same air as other people. <laughs> Makes us sound so weird. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Almost reckless, but uh, we're here. Um, we've been back to the office for a little while. Obviously, we're in this interim period between, um, you know, the release from lockdown on the contingent on double vaxxedness and um, the full release, which is happening in a week or so. And the purpose of the podcast is really just to offer some guidance to those looking at implementing uh, normality in their workplaces. Um, first of all, we're going to discuss uh, some of the recent decisions that have shed a little bit more light upon the vaccination issue. And obviously our last podcast was about vaccinations. Again, we're going to go there um, just because there's been some interesting decisions, both in relation to the public health mandates in relation to various industries, but also um, the issue of whether or not an employer privately as a question of contract, can issue a lawful and reasonable direction for their employees to be vaccinated as a condition of their employment. And there's been a lot of activity in the courts and the tribunals, which we're going to you know, provide a brief update on. We're then going to do The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, our, our regular segment, as well as the movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's right. Which I watched a long time ago, so <laughs> I might struggle. I struggle anyway in the movie review capacity. So... <laughs> So we'll start with um, the decisions on mandating um, the public health orders that have mandated vaccines for certain industries. And we started with the health industry very broadly, um, not long after the aged care, disability industry, and also childcare. And that's been subject to quite a lot of the protests that we've been seeing, but there have been decisions in the court. What have we learned from the courts on this? My my take, Courtney, is that it's been pretty unequivocally in favour of the executive government's right to issue a mandate. Yes, that, that is correct. So reviewing the, the judgments, there were many, many grounds um, that these health orders are being challenged on. And it's a bit of a Hail Mary, it seemed. Just yeah. throw everything at it, see yeah. what sticks. Starting with Kazam and Hazard, where a number of workers in the health, aged care, construction and education industry claimed that the health orders made under Section 7.2 of the Public Health Act were invalid. There were two main focuses for this proceeding. The first were the orders that prevented authorised workers from leaving their affected areas of concern to attend the workplace. Remember when the restrictions were in place and you couldn't leave. And then the second part were the mandates that required people in the construction, aged care and education sector to not be able to attend work unless they were vaccinated um, against COVID-19. There are a lot of considerations in the judgment, but two of the really interesting points were in relation to being unvaccinated and whether that meant you were considered a person with a disability, and then secondly, they also discussed um, an individual's right to bodily integrity and whether that was being impacted on by the mandates. And then actually thirdly, and the main point is actually the function of the court in terms of those challenges and what scope they have to comment on the public health orders. Yeah, and I, that, one of the things that I've, I've found very interesting in all of this without reading necessarily all the case law is certainly the dialogue around this bodily autonomy thing. And I mean, the, the important thing, and this might be seem like a crazy distinction to me, but the important thing to note is no one is actually being mandated to have the vaccine. They're just saying you can't do certain jobs if you don't have the vaccine. It's not the same as a public health order saying, you must have the vaccine. Yes. And that's a, a to me, is a critical distinction. But anyway. We're, we're, no, that's exactly the distinction the Supreme Court's made. So they've said basically your consent to a vaccination, that's not disappearing just because there are prohibitions on movement or your access to employment. At the end of the day, you are still given the right to choose and actually they discuss it again in the BHP case, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Yeah, in a slightly um, different context. Yeah, but the key point was Did just, the judge actually say at the end of the day? That's the, <laughs> I think that was the, the Courtney version. <laughs> um, 
yeah. So that's the bodily autonomy. And then what did they say about the discrimination point? Because that's interesting too. Yeah. So basically they said that while firstly they disagreed that being unvaccinated was a disability and then said even if it did amount to a disability, um, treating people who are unvaccinated differently to to how you would treat those who are vaccinated will not amount to direct discrimination because they're not being treated less favourable in circumstances that are not materially different. Yeah. So they're saying that being vaccinated and being unvaccinated is materially different. That's right. That's Which, right. So all discrimination claims, you know, depend upon establishing the comparator. And really they're saying the comparator is not a relevant test because that person is vaccinated, so they're not the same. You are a higher risk, yeah. therefore, the circumstances. And I, th- and I think it's really important as well, just for the listener's benefit, because I think it's a really critical distinction to say this argument was that not being vaccinated was a disability and that was debunked. Important thing to note is that those people, and they're, they're really important in this mix, that have a medical contraindication about the vaccination and they've been accept- exempted from the mandate now, there's a difference between choosing not to be vaccinated and whether or not that's considered a disability, which the court says is not, and having a contraindication, a medical contraindication that means you can't have the vaccine, which clearly is yeah. and satisfies that definition. So any type of adverse action or discrimination against someone with a contraindication is clearly going to be unlawful. Um, but, but in this case, they were merely arguing that Choosing not to have a vaccine was a form of a disability and the court didn't accept that. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So they, yeah, basically they dismissed all challenges um, and really importantly the, the Supreme Court noted that it wasn't their function to determine the merits of the minister, health minister's power to exercise those orders. Um, it wasn't their place to decide whether the mandates were effective. It wasn't their place to decide whether there were more appropriate measures that could have been implemented at the end of the day, they were just, that was a question for the decision maker, not the court. It was just up to them to determine how Section 7 of the Public Health Act was going to be applied. Yeah, absolutely. And like all principles of administrative law, the general public often regard these court challenges as being merit-based challenges and, yeah. and they're merely not. Some of the dialogue from the protesters, for instance, that, you know, the executive government doesn't have the power to make these orders because there's been no legislation. As we know, um, legislation empowers the executive to make executive orders um, and the court's role is to assess whether those orders have been lawfully made um, subject to the principles of administrative law. It's not a case of let's go to the court and the court can decide, which... Is, is a little, you know, is, is a little hard because our, our system is so different from the states where you have these constitutional challenges based on the Bill of Rights where what we do in, in, the, in the Australian system regarding, you know, administrative cases such as this is the only thing you can challenge is the legality of the order, not the merits. And they did specifically say that in this case too, that Australia doesn't have a Bill of Rights. Yeah. Um, and they also knocked back the challenge relating to the International Covenant of Civil and Political mm. Rights. Yeah. I, I think it's important to note as well that the, the Supreme Court, um, from a legal perspective and that administrative law perspective about the public health orders was involved first of all, but the real battleground for some of these questions, of course, is going to be the Fair Work Commission, as and when people start to actually lose their jobs in, in relation to not following vaccine mandates. There's been a few cases in the Commission. Oh, yeah. No, they've had an influx. There was a hearing of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Employment, Education and Training, um, and the Fair Work Commission made a number of comments about the spike that they'd seen in vaccination-related claims. Yeah, which we knew was going to, like, and before you go on, I mean, we knew that was going to happen because we've got all this talk about lawful and reasonable directions, but really the critical thing that was going to be people losing jobs yeah, and, right. and, and unfair dismissals. And so really in the unfair dismissal context, the vaccination related, that's what that was about, wasn't it? Yeah, so. and the inquiry was actually, it was in relation to how the, the, the pandemic had impacted the Fair Work Commission's workload. Um, and they actually said that they had had 161 unfair dismissals that referred to vaccinations in the six weeks preceding the hearing. Right. So that's 
27 claims each week, <laughs> which makes up about 10% of their caseload. Yeah, right. So which 10% is- of unfair dismissals in that period were related to vaccines of some sort. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and in, in they did say that they didn't actually um, cause any additional problems. It was all kind of absorbed with their usual workload, divided equally, all that stuff. Um, but it was also interesting because the Australian Hotels Association had told the inquiry that approximately 63% of hotel employees didn't want to work alongside other employees who were unvaccinated. Mm. Well, we don't know what the circumstances of those 161 cases are. Presumably some of them are people that have lost jobs as a result of the public health mandate, but then there's others that have lost jobs because of the employer issuing a direction. And you have to presume, given this is such an emotive issue, that a, that a higher than normal proportion will go to arbitration. So we can only imagine out of that 161, there's going to be six or seven decisions in the commission over the next few months relating to 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 vaccines and, and in particular to, to whether or not a dismissal has been unfair um, because someone's been dismissed for, for a failure to have the vaccine either as a result of the mandate or the lawful and reasonable direction. But the other thing that's been quite big and like everything, the CFMEU and BHP seem to be the parties that fight things out to the bitter end. <laughs> oh, this is the BHP, yeah, yeah. no, um, Mount Arthur yeah. in New South Wales. So basic facts, BHP had applied a vaccination mandate across all of its mines all over Australia. All over Australia, yeah. Uh, and the CFMEU was arguing that the company's application of the vaccination mandate to its New South Wales location, that's Mount Arthur, did not uh, constitute a lawful and reasonable direction for a number of reasons, but just name a few. First of all, that New South Wales didn't have a public health order requiring mandatory vaccination of mine workers, which actually was the case in Western Australia, so it would have applied to other BHP mines, but not this particular location, Um, and that there were already very strict COVID control measures at uh, the Mount Arthur mine, including, um, you know, rapid testing, social distancing, general hygiene measures. Yeah. So the applicants, the workers, uh, covered by the BHP Enterprise Agreement, sought an interim sought interim relief, asking that the Fair Commission order that BHP would not be allowed to dismiss, discipline, or otherwise prejudice the employment of the applicants. Um, right, so they argued that, dispute, uh, that the disputes procedure in the Enterprise Agreement provided that there should not be a stoppage of work during a dispute. And the Fair Work Commission pretty quickly dismissed that. They yeah. said that it's not a stoppage. Um, work would continue regularly, everyone except those who chose not to comply with the direction yeah. to get vaccinated. Yeah. So not a stoppage. Really, yeah, that part of the enterprise agreement is really you can't strike during the dispute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, good, good try. Solid, yeah. solid attempt. <laughs> um, and also, man, other or BHP gave undertakings that it wouldn't actually implement the outcome of any disciplining process um, with any employee's refusal to comply with the mandate until the full bench decision, um, so not this decision, the next one, um, and until each employee also had an opportunity to consider their position in light of the decision. So what they're saying is that they won't fire anybody, and also even if the full bench found that the mandate is valid, they would give everyone another opportunity to consider yeah. whether they want to get vaccinated yeah. Yeah. and keep working. Absolutely. So it's quite different from what we're talking about, which is the 161 unfair dismissals where people have been dismissed already. Yeah. This is a this is a mandate and then it's disputed under the EA. So that actually sounds as if they're relatively reasonable. Yeah, and then they also added that they wouldn't, um, that if, on the other hand, the full bench found that the mandate wasn't, what, wasn't lawful or was not reasonable, then they would back pay everyone for any... Um, Lost time. Yeah. But um, in order to, in order for the workers to qualify for the discretionary, discretionary relief, they would have had to establish that they had a prima facie case that the, and that the balance of convenience favours the grant of the injunction yeah. on the mandate. The workers had to establish a prima facie case in the sense that if the evidence remains as it is, there is a probability that the applicants will be held entitled to the relief, the injunction. Um, and the workers contended 
that the mandate was unlawful because it was introduced without complying with the consultation requirements under the Enterprise Agreement, which I think Courtney might talk about in more detail. But um, essentially what Deputy President Saunders said was that that was a weak prima facie case in relation to lawfulness because the Work Health and Safety Act prescribes the consequences for failing to comply with the consultation requirements under the Work Health and Safety Act, which was um, a penalty and didn't actually provide um, for the invalidation of a decision um, where they had failed to consult. Yeah. But he accepted it nonetheless um, and similarly accepted that there was a prima facie case on the question of reasonableness as well, but in the course of coming to that decision, also made a point to say that vaccines reduce the risk of being infected with COVID. Um, A single dose would have significantly reduced the risk of becoming ill or dying. And that the risks to health and safety will continue to be substantial even after COVID becomes endemic and vaccination rates are high. So he provided a lot of reasons for why it's completely reasonable for an employer to mandate vaccination. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, one of the key things and often with interlocutory hearings, the thing that's forgotten is the balance of convenience thing. You know, when you look at and you were talking about the balance, of, you know, obviously mm. there was a prima facie case to be tried on um, the balance of convenience. I think the fact that the, BH, the BHP had provided those undertakings, which actually sound reasonably fair in the sense thought, that, yeah. mm. you know, we'll, 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 we'll suspend any kind of... Um, you know, adverse decision, they'll have a second chance, et cetera, et cetera. I think probably the balance of convenience weighed in the favour of denying the injunction um, in, in that sense when weighed against those potential health and safety risks. No, I don't think yeah. I even even touched on the main point, which was basically that the Fairwood Commission still held that in terms of keeping status quo, it yeah. was the mandate remaining in place was... Well, yeah. was what they were going to allow. So Now, I took from that incorrectly. <laughs> That's got to be a real indicator of how this case is going to come down, but then it didn't, did it? Plot twist. <laughs> <laughs> it did not go that way. Yeah. The Fair Work Commission held that it wasn't a reasonable direction. CFMEU and the employees basically had four key submissions to the Fair Work Commission claiming that the direction was not lawful and alternatively not reasonable. So the first one was that they hadn't complied with the consultation requirements under the Work Health and Safety Act in New South Wales. Um, second was they didn't comply with the consultation obligations in their enterprise agreement. Third, that they did not comply with their obligations under the Privacy Act and four, that the direction would impair an employee's right to bodily integrity. So ultimately, the Fair Work Commission found that BHP had failed to meaningfully consult um, with the unions, health and safety reps, and employees as mandated under the Work Health and Safety Act. I, I guess the key is that while the full bench acknowledged the point that Deputy President Saunders said uh, about the fact that the work health and safety consultation requirement would only lead to a penalty as opposed to the invalidation of the decision. The critical point is that in the absence of consultation, where there's a consultation requirement, it's not possible to say that a direction is reasonable. Yes, and they did say that even if the Fair Work Commission was wrong in saying that they had failed to consult, the fact that any consultation that BHP was claiming was inadequate and therefore that factored in when assessing the reasonableness of the direction. Absolutely. So basically they didn't express, so they didn't need to express a view as to whether the failure to comply to the duty to consult was even relevant for lawfulness um, because we've already said it's not reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Although interestingly, they did note that there were a range of considerations that otherwise would have weighed in favour of finding that the direction or mandate was Was reasonable, reasonable. which included that the direction was aimed at ensuring the health and safety of the workers at the mine. Um, The direction had a logical and understandable basis. It was reasonably proportionate to the risk created by COVID and it was developed having regard to the circumstances of the mine 
um, and including the fact that the mine workers cannot return home and come into contact with other workers while at work. Uh, also, in relation to the timing for its commencement, like the number of COVID cases in the Hunter Valley at yeah. that time, and then also that the coal mine, like Mount Arthur, had spent a considerable amount of time encouraging vaccination amongst their workforce and had set up a vaccination hub. Yeah. So it was accessible. Yeah. It was there if people wanted it. And they did say that if BHP had consulted in accordance with its consult- consultation obligations under the Work Health and Safety Act, um, the above considerations would have provided a strong case in favour of the conclusion yeah. that the mandate was, was a reasonable direction. That's right. So everything but if they'd consulted, yeah. reasonable. Yeah. So bearing in mind this is this is the resolution of a dispute under the Enterprise Agreement by the Federal Commission and they've offered some fairly sizable kind of obita dicta in relation to saying had they consulted properly, we would have found that it was reasonable, which is also code for them saying to BHP, go away, <laughs> consult properly and reissue the direction. Yeah. You know, so so it's a, it's a bit of an interesting one. I think a lot of people thinking this is, this is a major win for the anti-vaxxer movement. In actual fact, it's a major win for the consultation at work movement. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's all that can be really drawn from it at this stage, I think. And yeah. they did on, I guess, the objection to vaccination on other grounds, they did make some interesting comments in relation to bodily integrity. So the union interveners contended that the requirement at least impacts upon a choice of an individual to undergo a medical procedure. So if it's affecting someone's employment, are they really free to choose? And the Fair Work Commission rejected that the direction was legal coercion, but they did accept that the direction is a form of social and economic pressure but they said that the practical effect of this requirement is to apply pressure to employees to surrender their bodily integrity by undergoing the vaccination, maybe where they wouldn't, while in their view that is relevant in assessing the reasonableness of the direction, that is not the only factor. That factor of bodily integrity needs to be weighed up against every other circumstance surrounding that mandate. And they said it important to weigh that factor against other considerations um very wise and they referred to hazm and kazid as well um in that decision i've never been impressed by the bodily integrity argument because it's really Mm. not nobody's forcing anything on anybody um Mm. we're just we're just setting rules but it's and the fact that they've conceded that yes there is economic and social pressure we're weighing that up still yeah yeah that's it's there but that's not like any right, yeah. it has to be weighed against other rights. That's right. Pretty clear path to sum it up that the, you know, both the tribunals and the courts are going to favour, you know, a sensible mandate where it's appropriate on a case-by-case basis where proper process consultation is followed. And, but that's basically an update. Um, to the situation, I think. Have you guys got anything else to add on that? Nothing to add on that, no. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. Okay, so I'm joined by our associate, Emily Riera. Hi, Emily. We are here now. We're going to talk about, you know, really the way forward for employers. We're getting a lot of inquiries about what employers should do going forward. And look, the starting point for me, you know, with vaccines, I wanted to talk about this kind of strange time we've had this interim time um between i think what was when do we get released did you say it was like the october around 11th of october 11th of october to the 15th of december and we had some new orders so the previous stay at home orders in, in relation to employment obviously we we had to stay stay at home unless we had a reasonable excuse. That was the starting point, unless we had to go to the shops or essential services, etc. Now, in relation to work, employers um, must, at that time, the order said that employers must allow employees to work from home if it was reasonably practical. And that was fairly fairly easy to, to work out. Now, the new orders that came in around 11 October <clears throat> obviously allowed us to go out on certain conditions if we were vaccinated, etc. In relation to work, the employers still must allow employees to work from home if it was reasonably practical to do so, but they also must require 
unvaccinated employees to work from home unless it was reasonably practical to do so. And, and so we had a lot of discussions about what really that meant. And, and the, the only conclusion, given the withdrawal of the, the stay-at-home order, the only conclusion really was that vaccinated employees then had a choice about whether they wanted to come to work. Um, unvaccinated employees were required to work from home. And I think there were sort of three interesting parts to this. Firstly, they introduced the distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated at work for the first time. Yes. Um, they also introduced this concept of employee choice for the first time, I think perhaps inadvertently. And third, and probably most importantly, not only did they allow employers to ask about vaccination status, but they actually required employers effectively to ask about vaccination status. So well, that's, yeah. This is a part that is a little bit unclear for me. Yeah. Because, yes, you will think that under the health order, the employer needs to know your vaccine, vaccination status. Yeah because unvaccinated employees are required to work from home. Yeah. But it doesn't say clearly that your employer is allowed to ask for your vaccination status. No. So um, I think that is something unclear yeah. for a lot of employees still. Yeah. And also like employer. Yeah. Are they able to require yeah. the vaccination status from their employee? And what are the condition of uh, collecting vaccination status. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so, so you say on, on, on one level it was possible that this order meant that unless, if it was reasonably practicable for people to work from home, they should just be allowed from work from home and there was no right to ask for vaccine status. Yes. However, you know, on another reading, it seems to create these two levels and, and it certainly created at least... Prima facie, I would say that it created an entitlement to ask the question if employees were coming back to work, you know, and, and with a lot of our clients, we found a lot of employees were really ready to come back to work and, and quite willing to show their um, vaccination certificates um, to get back to work. But it's created a, quite an interesting interesting situation because from the 15th of December, now that we've got, we're, 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 we're targeting towards or we're trending towards the 95% vaccination and indications are that there's then going to be no distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated in everyday society. Yes. But employers have now in many cases collected information sure. about vaccinations. And the first point I was going to raise about that that I thought was quite interesting and in an article that I read that suggested that um, the federal government, by making the individual health identifier um, feature on people's vaccination certificate was a, a major mistake and, and puts a lot of employers at risk if they actually collect the vaccination certificates themselves. So our general advice has been cite the vaccination certificate. Yes. Um, if you need to. Yeah, and cite it every day if you need to. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. check De it at yeah. the entry. Yeah, um, depending on the... On the, on the employer and, and the, the, you know, I think if you've got five employees and you yeah, satisfy fine. yourself. <laughs> yeah, but cited on, on entry as exactly as if you're entering into a, a pub or a club, but, but don't store or record the information because there's some significant dangers, in particular related, relating to that individual health identifier, which is one of the most sensitive pieces of information a person has, um, which opens up a, a range of legal risks. Um, the other point being that even if you were to keep you know, so if you didn't go through the process you're saying of citing it every day on entry, um, even keeping a sort of a paper register with a tick or a cross becomes the, the maintaining of a, a person's health record, doesn't it? Yes. And so the privacy principles come into play, which I know you've given some advice on people about. And what you know, In effect, the, the fundamentals are that you can allow, you can, you can request records so long as... But you need to have reason yeah, for, right. for that. So yeah. like you, you need to justify that your workplace needs to collect 
yeah. those information. Yeah. So it's not that for you it is simpler to yeah. have a copy of your employee vaccination. Yeah. You have to justify why you need a copy of their yeah. vaccination status. And I'm talking about New South Wales. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah because uh, it may be different in other states. Yeah. But yes, in New South Wales, um, you have like to, to justify why you need that, but you also have like to inform your employees of why you are collecting those information, yeah. how they're going to be stored, yeah. uh, unsure they are um, stored somewhere safe yeah. and appropriately safe and, and kept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the interesting thing for me is we've had this frenzy and, and as I say, for employers keen to transition people back to the workforce and we were in that category, we couldn't wait in a way um, to at least come back some of the time. Um, and I think that there's been this frenzy of activity and this frenzy around, uh, you know, vaccination status information, but really it seems that from the 15th of December onwards, that distinction is not going to be supported by any health orders. So if you want to draw the distinction at work, you need to have a reason. Um, and if you're not, as we've just been talking about the lawful and reasonable direction to, to direct people to vaccinate, um, if you're not in that category where you're able to give the lawful and reasonable direction or if you've chosen not to give the direction, then whether or not you've got the entitlement to retain information about or, or to ask the question about vaccination is another thing and it's yeah. very it's an, an anomaly. And in that case you will be probably not. Yeah. Like <laughs> well, will, that's right. Like what you will be able to do is yeah, ask to cite the vaccination status of your employees yeah. and that's all. Yeah. And not keep a record of no, it. That's right. And, and I think look we've had some discussion and prior to um the ninety five percent you know, prior to the to, to our knowledge that we were going to reach ninety five percent in New South Wales so quickly, given where we started from, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of talk about what could be done in terms of managing the risk of unvaccinated as opposed to just issuing a direction. Um, certainly people were talking about, um, you know, imposing sort of policies around mask wearing and, and, and some of those things. Um, you know, looking overseas, I understand that that's been um, successfully implemented in, in, in some cases. There's that danger of it. Um, you know, I think there was someone on, on, on Facebook the, or on Instagram that went viral about, you know, comparing mask wearing to um, the yellow star in the Holocaust and stuff. And then there's been a lot of discussion of that type of thing. But there is a genuine concern to my mind with how emotive this has become about having a situation where you could create this kind of anti-vax shaming yes. at work. And if you impose too much difference between um, vaccination and unvaccination um, in terms of status, then then you could create that situation where people are singled, possibly even harassed, bullied, yeah. you know, in the meaning of the Fair, Fair Work Act. There's some dangers. But in, in a way, it is created by the health orders who imposes the obligation on employer to ensure that the non-vaccinated employees are working oh. From home at the moment. Yeah, so absolutely. But what so happens? You're making a distinction, and yeah. and I agree that from the 15th of December, it seems that you will will not be allowed to ask yeah. anymore for yeah. vaccination status. And yeah. my understanding is that we'll be able to go to restaurants, shops, that's right, gyms, yeah. everywhere yeah. without uh, asking. Yeah. No, absolutely, but it's just funny that there's created this temporary situation where employers suddenly can ask, even if they're not going to direct or if they're not in the category of employees. And really we're talking, I suppose, about the office type. Yeah. You know, what the Fair Work Commissioner said, your tier four yeah. sort of in, in employees. Um, but it, it creates, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there is still a door open there because you will see that now more employment contracts will require you to be vaccinated. Yeah to like work to yeah, yeah. And, and get the job. So, um, and at the moment it seems that it'd be lawful to have this type yeah. of clause in yeah. an employment contract. Absolutely. So you still, even after the 15th yeah. of December, yeah. you still make that difference between unvaccinated yeah, and, and vaccinated, vaccinated yeah. employees. Yeah, and that's interesting because the threshold, I mean, 
it's, it's an entirely different proposition to say that you won't hire someone that's not vaccinated compared to issuing an existing employee with a direction, yeah. which then will result in potentially dismissal and, and, and action and the rest of it. Because as we've heard um, in relation to the Kassam and, and Hazard case, it's the, the court's view is that voluntarily choosing not to have a vaccine is not a protected attribute from the discrimination perspective, so there's no reason why that can't go in. But in terms of other things, I mean, what, what we've been trying to encourage people to do is more focus forward beyond 15th of December on actually just trying to make the workplaces as safe as possible yes. without necessarily, you know, uh, getting into the individual case-by-case status and we can rely upon the fact that, you know, New South Wales health has, has decided that 95% gives us a sufficient herd immunity to go back to normal. So to, to that degree, you know, whether or not you can pinpoint individuals uh, based on their vaccine, vaccine status um, in, a, in a workplace where directions haven't been given to have them um, is another question. But what's some of the things that the, the, the people, are, people are dealing with? I mean, you know, for instance, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is a general hesitancy for employees to come back to work yes. at all, um, and what, what's your you know what's your position on on that? There's been some quite interesting stuff happening. Yeah, I think uh, lots of employer got this issue at the moment. So as you were saying, we're trying to get back to a normal life, yeah. as normal as possible, and some employees got some resistance of going back to work, maybe yeah. because they using. Um, Travel transport. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, being in the office is one thing, but being on a train to the office is a, is a separate yes. risk proposition. And yeah. so in a way, like for, for an employer, there's different, different consideration. It's like the employer needs to ensure that their workplace is safe. Yeah. So when we're talking just before about vaccination, vaccination is one thing, but as an employer, you also need to make sure you respect all the rules we were applying before yeah. and that we keep applying, like, distancing, yeah. uh, washing, yes, yeah, washing hands, yeah. wearing, wearing a mask maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it really depends of your workplace, yeah. your space, uh, what industry you're working yeah. for. Yeah. Um, but there is also that consideration for so for your employees to make sure that you offer them a safe place to work. And employees may have consideration also regarding to unvaccinated employees. You yeah. may have that issue of someone who don't want to go back to work yeah. because they know their colleagues are not vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Someone don't want to go back to work because they don't want to take the train. Yeah. Um, so one way to control that will be to have a policy, yeah, like a COVID-19 policy, yeah. maybe that will be like specific for, yeah. for this and yeah. where you can explain to all of your employees what are the measures you're yeah, taking yeah. Yeah. to protect them and yeah. try to apply this um, fairly. as fairly yeah, yeah, as yeah. possible. Like, like to everyone, but obviously sometimes you may have to take into consideration like some particular concerns that an employee may have, yeah. like if they have like some previous health issue, yeah, or when yeah, talking like a, a like deficiency or, or if they're pregnant or yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it interests me. I, I think back to. You know, the years ago when I used to commute on the train every day um, from the Central Coast and in winter you'd be on a full carriage and there'd be at least three or four people like coughing and spluttering, like struggling to work with a cold. I don't think <laughs> I don't you think that's that's that anymore. <laughs> no, and, and, but that's the interesting thing as well. And I think the main thing still as we go on deep into the future is that, that basic protocols around if you've got symptoms, get a test, yes. stay at home, work from home, flexibility on those things. Yeah. I think, you know, the days of, of where, you, where you just struggle on and, and cough and splutter all over your colleagues is, is a thing of the past. Yes, but yeah. you may also need, like, to add 
that you know you personally policy too yeah because and then I think it depends of every industry and empire but because simply like you're coughing and maybe you think like you don't want to go to the office yeah so doesn't mean you need to take a personal leave yeah. or does that mean then that you're allowed to work from home yeah and does that open the door for every employee as soon as they have a little something, a little headache, or yeah, yeah, yeah. to have a reasonable, reasonable excuse not to come to that, the office? That's right. And, so, and that's correlation. And it's always been in, in, in personal leave policies as well, that whole clear distinction between being sick and um, and working and, and, you know, you're certainly working from home and just struggling through is, you know, not consistent with a good policy application. Having said that, traditionally, you could have a sniffle or a cough or some type of symptom and not consider yourself sick enough. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, yes. so we don't want necessarily people taking it personally. But, I, but the threshold for me, and we put this in a few policies, is basically if you're sick enough to isolate or if you have symptoms significant enough to isolate, then get a test. Yes. So, so the, the, none of this, which we've seen a little bit of this, oh, I've got, I've got symptoms. I don't think I'm bad enough to get a test, but I better not come to work, you know. That's it. Yes, <laughs> but you still have this window of 24 hours yeah. between you get your results yeah. of what do you do then? Like, do you take one day of personal leave yeah. or can you work from home because you're just, like, coughing and it's just yeah. as a prevention because you're asked not to come to the office. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's a case by case and, and, and then the appetite of the employer. The one thing I would say is that it needs to be clearly established at the beginning of the day yes. which one it is. And it needs yeah. to be applied also to everyone in the same way. That's right. That's right. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, plenty to think about. Thanks, Emily. No worries. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Time for the good the bad, the ugly. Who's okay. going first? What do you got, Essie? Uh, my good uh, is that the fruit pickers were finally given a minimum wage after a lot of chat about how uh, the peace rate meant that a lot of people were on some ridiculous hourly rates, really. It wasn't really very livable. So yeah. the Fair Commission updated the horticulture award or a decision on that. So yeah, yeah. So 25 an hour. And I agree, it's, that has always, that peace rate provision in the horticultural award has always been a standalone throughout all of the awards. You're like, how, you know, how is that surviving when, when the, you know, the, the, one of the objectives of the modern awards is like pay for like work. Um, yeah. It is interesting. And, I, and I've always suspected, and I think it's, you know, Australia's very proud of its primary producers, and, 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 but, I, but I always suspect that kind of the primary producers have always done a little better in the modern in the in the award system than um than some some other industries. So that's interesting. But we'll yeah. see. But we'll see how 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 they go with that. It's obviously going to m- make a big difference in terms of um of you know going forward. But yeah, no, that is a very that that's definitely a good. Have you got one? Yes, I do have a good. Uh, so my good was I guess it started. Badly, there was um, an employee of a potato processing plant who had worked there for 23 and a half years and had been unfairly dismissed without a valid reason. Um, and the commission originally found that reinstatement wasn't appropriate, yep. but then on appeal they actually granted reinstatement, um, which I just yeah. think is nice after 23 yeah. years. Yep. And, you know, it doesn't always happen. Um, yep. And he, no, you know. No, that's fair. Yeah, Yep. No hard feelings between everyone, things like that. So well, it's funny because it's the primary. It's supposed to be the primary remedy yeah. for the unfair dismissal regime, and yet you know you, we, were, we were even saying yesterday how few of them go to arbitration and how few of those result in reinstatement. It's yeah. quite a rarity, isn't it? Um, yeah, certainly that's the way that it was supposed to. You know that that's the rationale behind the, the scheme, but it's rare to find a situation where reinstatement can be effectively done. Yeah. Mine's also an unfair dismissal. I, I didn't read the whole case, but I was just attracted to it. It might even be the same case. But um, I noticed that one of the Fair Work Commissioners described a performance management process as being ham-fisted. 
which <laughs> which I, I I haven't heard that expression for a while, and it's quite you know I guess it's quite old fashioned, but I I, I love it's just so um, evocative in the sense of someone walking around with a ham for a fist and being unable but to describe performance management as ham fisted, I just thought that was very eloquent. I'm so pleased to see some creativity and eloquence in, in judgments. It certainly makes the time, time <laughs> goes great. by. What about a bad, Essie? Oh, my bad. Um, well, Patrick Terminals, which is the container seaport terminal operator, um, had submitted a Section 424 application to the Fair Work Commission to end industrial action of the Maritime Union of Australia, or sorry, well, members of, because um, they were planning a series of strikes and their concerns were, I guess, you know, what would that do with, um, how, how would that work with uh, the Christmas period coming up um, and their profitability during COVID and, and all that stuff. And what I found interesting was that the basis for the application, so Section 424 under the Fair Work Act provides sort of two bases for, uh, to, to make an application for the Fair Work Commission to um, interject in uh, protected industrial action. And one of them is if there's a threat to, um, well, to, to endanger the life of a population, of the population, I think. And then the other one is to cause significant damage to the Australian economy. And uh, Patrick Termals was arguing that the strike would, would cause significant damage to the Australian economy. And I just thought that was very... Uh, unique <laughs> in some ways, and um, but uh, the AMUA actually then decided to call off its strikes until the 10th of December, so saving Christmas. Yeah. So it was a good and a bad. <laughs> yeah. So you know, an interesting interpretation in terms of you saying that really just a strike at that at those four wharves has the capacity to damage the Australian economy is perhaps overrating their importance a bit. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's kind of really funny. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a really hard bar, hard bar to meet. So yeah. um, to just think that they have that kind of an impact, I mean, great. It's a yeah. creative take. <laughs> well, I recall a few years ago, I don't, I don't know how long ago, but four or five years ago, there was the threatened rail strike over the new timetables in, in Sydney Rail and, and um, DP Hamburger ordered that um, the suspension of that industrial action and that was on the grounds of the endanger to people's lives and it was funny he copped a fair bit of criticism on social media but he made the point that where you take every single rail when you shut the rail network down in Sydney for an entire day um, the extra cars that go onto the road are going to cause accidents are going to cause mm. danger to the endangered it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's not, not hard to, to justify that but you're right the Australian economy um, it's a bit of a stretch maybe it's a big one. <laughs> Courtney's bad. Yes. Uh, my bad was, I think it was about a month ago now, but a teenager who worked at a pizza place um, was dismissed from her job after she got the COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and that's being challenged in the Human Rights Commission, which is already a little bit a bit messy and bad. But what made it worse was the employer actually made a Facebook post at the time in response um, and it was they have since deleted it so I can't go back and confirm the reading but what they had said when I read it a few weeks ago was basically justifying all the performance issues for her dismissal on a public Facebook page for a teenager wow. I just thought for many reasons that is not what an employer should be doing for a teenager that's yeah. rough yeah yeah, golden rule, whether you're the employer or the employee, stay off Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're intending to disparage the other in any circumstance at all. Um, I mean, TikTok maybe, but TikTok. You know, it's going to be really good. It better be. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's a probably low, a low point, isn't it? It was bad. Um, my bad, and I'm not going to labour it, um, but my bad is the... Uh, Religious discrimination bill, yeah, um, and a specific aspect of it. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because it actually occurred to me we might do the next podcast about the bill next year after Christmas. I think we might talk about it oh, because yeah. I've actually read it in some detail, and, and there are some for for me there's some disturbing um, aspects of it. And in particular, I, I don't really see what sort of mischief 
the legislation is designed to cure. I know we had the Israel Folau scandal and, and a lot of people were talking about whether or not, um, you know, a lot of people started talking about religious freedom again, but I, I really don't think we need this bill. But, but the specific yeah. bad, and, and it was an article um, yesterday in Lawyers Weekly, um, was about the Australian Lawyers Alliance have made a particular point about the, the statement of belief exception in the religious bill. And, and the point they've made is that because you can, you know, following the passing of the bill, if it passes in its present form, you can make a statement of belief and that statement of belief is protected from, you know, legal consequences. And, and the point the Australian Lawyers Alliance have made on this is that it could well be that lawyers um, can use the banner of religion to criticise the court system, criticise the legal profession, criticise individual judges and judgments in a way that would normally be sanctionable under the legal, the uniform, um, the, the legal profession uniform law um, and the legal professional standards. And from that point of view, it, whether religion can then be used to bypass that. And the examples they gave is, is, is criticising certain decisions as immoral or decisions as lacking Christian values, etc., mm -hmm. which could potentially be protected. Now, it's interesting in the context of a situation where we've recently had a lawyer suspended for six months um, because of their activity in the anti-vax space for that exact reason because they've effectively brought the legal profession into disrepute um, effectively by, you know, criticising executive government orders, offering a, an opinion that um, certain things weren't lawful um, and, and, you know, inciting in some cases people not to follow the law and, and that person's been sanctioned. Now, if that's not an anti-vaxxer position but a religious position, the bill's going to protect that type of conduct. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting point, but I think we'll go into that bill um, a little bit more um, next year because I think it might be an interesting topic. That's a good idea. Yeah. Ugly. We're after the ugly. Yeah. Um, my ugly... Very ugly. There was a report from the ABS, the Bureau of Statistics, that found that 53% of women and a quarter of men uh, have experienced at least one incident of sexual harassment in their lifetime, which um, not not entirely unexpected. I think 53% actually sounds quite low. Yeah. Um, it's still ugly. Yeah, the, sorry? It's still very ugly, 53% of people. Ugly. You know, to think that the majority, as a simple majority of the population, the female population, have, have reported experiencing it is is mean that it's more common than it's not common. <laughs> which is yeah. which is a problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. But yeah. Okay, my ugly. Um, there was a boss from a mortgage finance company in the US who yeah. dismissed over nine hundred employees via a one way video call. Wow. So no one really knew what was going on until they joined the call and he basically gave them a monologue explaining, um, he did say, if you are on this call, you are part of the unlucky group that is being laid off. Your employment no. here is terminated effective immediately. So he has since come out and apologised for the way. This is this is a real life thing. This is not a movie. Real life. I just watched the video. I'll send wow. it to you. Um, but he has since come out and apologised and said that he recognises that he did not handle it the best. Um, really? I tried to reassure them on the call that, you know, because this was my decision to make, I needed to be the one to tell you. Um, I don't know how he thinks that was a personalised message when there was 100 <laughs> people on the call. <laughs> it was That's as ugly as ugly gets. Yeah. I think you get the prize, Courtney. That's Thank the you. ugliest thing we've that, had that is. since the the good, the bad, the ugly. It was introduced <laughs> a few podcasts ago. Wow. My ugly, I'm just going to go big, COVID-19. Oh. oh. It's ugly. So ugly. I'm sick of it. And I'm going to say we're, we're declaring this is the last podcast we're going to do that has anything to do with COVID-19. Let's move on in January and put it behind us. But in a funny way, and just to sum it all up, and I, and I think, look, I'm going to go back on myself because it's also good, it's also bad. Um, I think uh, in terms of what COVID-19 has done to workforces has been, you know, a really interesting experience for us over the last two years in employment law, um, you know, and there are some goods. I mean, I was talking to uh, my brother, you know, a.k.a. the professor, uh, about this and 
you know, someone that's into um, academic innovation, he's he's been, you know, talking about the positive effects of of COVID nineteen in the sense that we've learned a lot of us have learned to work from home really mm-hmm. effectively. Um, it's yeah. broken down a lot of the traditional um, sort of reluctance about remote, you know, communication, video conferencing. Certainly from a remote education point of view, it's, it's been a major win for those that say this can be done effectively online. Workplaces have changed, they've adapted, they've, they've grown. You know, I think in, our, you know, in PCC Employment Lawyers, we've, we've adopted a whole new set of strategies and, and ways to, to, to work that have been really positive. And that has been a good, but I also think that's kind of a bit of a, it's only really the privileged few in the employment community that can actually say this has been a good thing and we really do have to think about it from a broader perspective. And as I said to the professor, it's a little bit like we've had to renovate our ivory towers a little bit yeah. with, with COVID. Whereas whereas for the for the poorer sections of the community, the, for, for in many cases the, the manual labourers, um, you know, and, and in particular retail and hospitality. And, and as we said a few months ago, you know, pink collar workers, you know, which has traditionally been the majority of, uh, have been female as well. So certainly for underemployed and low income people, this has been, you know, a really tragic period. And I think, you know, as much as you say about 750 per week or 600 per week or whatever this, um, maintenance packages were, which would, you know, in the scheme of things quite generous, but, being out of work is, is not fun and being unable to work is terrible and can have very bad social consequences. So quite often at the lower income level, this has been a terrible thing and really at, may have had the effect of widening um, the gap even further between those of us that have you know, quite privileged existences in terms of what, what we do for a living and those that don't. And so I think that's a bad. And in the scheme of things, as much as we talk about the, the great resignation and all these great impacts on, on our, on our, you know, on our professional lives as professionals, I think that's got to be recognized. And the ugly of COVID is just the way that it managed to have brought out the worst in people yeah. at work. I think, let's face it, there's been plenty of, plenty of ugly. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but as I say, that's the last word I'm saying about COVID-19 ever. That's it, the end. <laughs> well, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> the movie. More fun things, that's right. Trial of Chicago 7. Day. And, look, let's face it, it was only because of COVID that we brought in the movie reviews, and that's that's here to stay. So I don't think... Oh, I don't think we're already talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I loved it. Great movie. Yeah. I loved it. That yeah. Great. yeah, it was a great idea. So... You know, what did you like? Uh, oh, my goodness. I, all the court scenes, pretty much, yeah. I think, were all my favorites. Yeah. I, I can't pick one. I loved that um, Abby and Jerry did the bit. Sorry. Spoilers, guys. Lots of spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> did, did their little bits of um, wearing costumes to court and yeah. watching that unravel was, was a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 And they were great characters. Like Abby was a fantastic character. And how good is Sasha Baron Cohen? He like, was brilliant. Generally? Like you just get used to him as Borat and Ali G and the rest of it, but he's such a good actor. Yeah. Like, and he played that part unbelievably well. It was but, quite um, fitting as well because I feel like you can underestimate Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. And then also there was that, they were kind of dismissing Abby a little bit at the start, maybe is just being a bit entertaining for the, of a comedian for the, yeah. yeah and then when he t- took the stand um that courtroom scene and he was the one that actually gave the evidence and he was just very impressive and yeah. very well composed yeah. it's yeah. kind of symbolic Definitely. the character and the actor well it was, it's just interesting too how you've got and i don't know how i know se you've looked into the to the reality of it but i i love the fact that you know you've got that sort of dynamic where you've got all these defendants but you've got sort of abby Tom and Bobby as these three completely different yeah. priorities on stuff. You know, you know, you've got the, the sort of the left wing um, political guy that you know goes on to have a successful political career, and it's obviously all part of left wing privilege. Then you've got Bobby, and then you've got Abby the hippie, and and just these sort of I guess these sort of different perspectives and how they mm-hmm. conflict a little bit. I mean, there's that scene where Tom. Just says to Abby, hey, this is serious. 
you know, this is this is serious. And then you got Bobby actually gagged and bound in the court. But the interesting thing for me is you you, you said um, I think on the last podcast when you told us about this that the transcript so in some places the actual transcript of the hearing was the script like they they that's completely right. and and it's funny I thought oh that's interesting or you know that's a little bit quirky but on reflection after watching it you realize that you just wouldn't believe it's true like yeah. it's so extreme that you genuinely would not believe that this is a true courtroom depiction you think oh this is you know what uh, well, you know they've gone over the top with this because it was it was just so incredible in places and it like there was a couple like i mean i thought i mean some characters i obviously abby's character was great but i also thought the judge did such a good job of being believable in being absolutely awful but just like you know, just such a representation of that, of, of the institution too. Like, you know, yeah. it's my courtroom, my rules, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, speaking of things from the transcript, the fact that he actually said, uh, he, he said something along the lines of no one's ever accused me about being, of being prejudicial against a black man before. And, yeah. you know, the fact that he had to actually say that and it's in a transcript somewhere and that they put the, put it in the movie too. It's just, yeah. I thought, yeah. Powerful. Um, yeah. We also saying that he was actually something that was new to me. That because the scene where he's bound and gagged, it, it, it doesn't last Bobby very Hill. long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it doesn't last long. The like prosecutor actually days. objects to it. But you were saying it's how long? Sorry. Yeah, at least I think six days. Five or six, six days. Like yeah. he would appear in court on separate days. You know, in that full chained up, gagged, just unbelievable, and denied access to legal representation. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, and the fact that Schultz, the uh, prosecutor, would have stood up for him uh, is completely fictionalized. That didn't happen. Yeah. Um, Schultz was apparently very much in favor of prosecuting them on a personal level. Right. And uh, in that sense, if, if we're talking about something I didn't like about the movie, is probably how they portrayed his character. You know, towards the end, they read out the list of the fallen names, and Schultz, like, stood up, and he's yeah. actually apparently gone out of his way to say that that never happened and never stood up. So <laughs> <laughs> I gave it a nice, I, I suppose you've got to have that dramatic arc, haven't you? You know, that, that sort yeah. of redemption, you know, because he's, he's a little, in the beginning, he's, he's actually a little against the prosecution to begin with, isn't he? You know, that, that's yeah. what he presents. But, um, you know, I, I suppose that's, you've got to give a little bit of artistic license there, don't you? That's right. <laughs> that's right. Favourite scenes? I've got to say, I actually found that, opening credits with all the real historical footage mm. to be really powerful. It drags you in True. straight away. Um, I had a funny experience with my watching with my wife and my eldest son who's 15 and they were seeing the draft, like the TV draft off of Vietnam and, and both of them were saying to me, is that how the draft actually happened? And it's like, it's incredible. That's what the draft was. Yeah, it's yeah. like watching the lotto. Are you yeah. going to find out? And it was kind of chilling for me. You know, obviously a 15-year-old wouldn't have been drafted, but he's not far off. It was kind of chilling mm. to be sitting as a family watching TV and thinking how would what would that have been like? That would just oh God, would yeah. have been something else, mm. you know, to, to be having your birthday coming out of a um, a bucket, you know. But, um, yeah. That was your favourite. That that, <laughs> well, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, it, it started it, the movie it was well off. I also loved it where he's... Um, I can't remember the exact words, but Bobby Seale, the whole exchange, and he's getting ready to go. And um, she says something about, you know, Martin. He's like, Martin had a dream and now he's got a bullet in his head. And Malcolm's dead. Bobby's dead. You know, and then she tries to give him the gun and he says, if I could use that, I wouldn't be making speeches. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of really cool. <laughs> um, it was kind of cool. but And I don't think I had a, a least favourite. I, I, like, the whole thing was pretty good. I, I was very entertained by it. Uh, the the scene where they first gagged Bobby was that just was hard to watch. Mm. Like I feel like that was really uncomfortable. And then the opening scene in the courtroom when you realise what they're in for, the duration of the trial was mm. very unsettling, but also like powerful and important to include. So even the bad scenes were completely necessary. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I already said the costumes were my favorite. And also that happened. That's actually something that they did take from reality. Really? They did show up in costume and I kind of loved it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, excellent suggestion. 
Essie, I, I reckon nine. It's a nine out of ten. Eight and a half, maybe, just to leave a bit of space for... For, for something better? For something better, but, yeah. I'd definitely put it up there with the, with the other ones. Better than Legally Blonde. <sighs> it, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. I'd say nine out of ten for sure. Yeah, look, I love Legally Blonde for many reasons, but this this got a nine. Nice. It's, it's the best one we've watched. It's great. Excluding Legally Blonde, obviously. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How about you? No, no, nine out of ten. Nine, you gave it a nine already. Sorry. Okay. Well, I think that that might be, we'll have to tally up the odds, but I think that might be winning. Mm, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is winning. So Emily suggested The Lincoln Lawyer. We're going back in time. Michael Connolly novel, which I've read, which is great. And uh, Matthew McConaughey. So that's that's next on the agenda. But that'll be over Christmas. I don't think we'll have another one until Christmas. And on that note, everyone... If you're wanting, if you're about to have your Christmas party, our podcast from a couple of years ago, still relevant. Be safe. Have someone in charge that's not drunk. Offer transport. Do all the good things because it's a dangerous time of year um, for employers. So have a look at that podcast from 2019 if you're worried about that. Otherwise, have a merry Christmas. We'll see you next year. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, see ya. Bye.